0: You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney, and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts.
1: Hi there, and welcome back. If you're a group practice owner, then we're confident that you already know and have much respect for today's guest. Today, Dan and I are talking with Maureen Werbach, who is the owner of a multi location group practice in Chicago, an owner of the Group Practice Exchange, and co owner of Group Practice Builders. Maureen loves creating a safe space for clinicians and clients to do amazing work together and equally enjoys helping group practice owners start and scale their group practices. I
2: I was going to say something that I actually heard recently an episode you did where you talked a little bit more about your bound background, and I heard that you had a German mom. You were the, the daughter of an a American father, a German mom, and, and you were born in Germany. And I was like, that is so cool because I grew up in a household where German was spoken. My grandparents from both sides are German immigrants. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's such a neat fact to hear. So I just, thought, just wanted to say, I thought that was cool to, to, to kind of hear that. But I'm also excited because obviously we know that you work with practitioners on developing group practices. Um, and that's something you're quite passionate about. But you're also really extremely knowledgeable on it, obviously. So it's really exciting to have you here to talk about it today and, and get your thoughts on things.
3: Well, it's really nice to see you both and uh, to to meet you, Dan and uh, German to German. Hi,
2: yeah. hello. Good <laughs> <laughs> to <Listen>, talk, right?
0: <laughs>
3: yeah, I'm excited to to chat with you guys and uh, hopefully give some insight to your audience.
1: Sure. Every now and then, Maureen, there's something that you post on the group practice exchange Instagram that makes me say, wow, like there are so many other conversations that we could be having about this. And that's one of the reasons that prompted me to reach out one particular post that I was curious about having some more conversations about. But before we get started into that, I thought maybe we could have a little bit of fun. In the emails that you send out for the group practice exchange, I often see a lot of GIFs, which by the way, I'm not cool. And I literally had to ask my husband and look up online, are they GIFs or are they GIFs? Because I don't know, because I'm not cool like that.
2: Is it GIFs? I always thought it was GIFs. Honestly. Apparently
1: that's a debated topic. Yeah. I don't know. I say GIF. I would think GIF too, but apparently that's um, a big debate. So, But that's what we're going to talk about starting out. Okay. So one um, topic. <laughs> yeah. So one thing starting out, um, if you could pick a GIF that describes what people think group practice ownership is like, what would that image be? It
3: would be a GIF of, or GIF, however you want to say it, of what other people think about group practice ownership. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if it's a non group practice owner, I would think that it's either two things a GIF with like a person with like just money falling on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, just like flying down or um, like a picture of them or a gif of them relaxing or vacationing. Nothing, nothing hard. Something super simple. Like I feel like it's just like vacationing and money and super easy and like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. They're similar to what I would pick as well. I would imagine someone like rolling in like a lot of money or like someone's feet propped up on a desk. Exactly. Yeah. So if you had to pick a GIF for what group practice ownership is actually like, what mm. would that image look like? I guess it's not so much a GIF, although
3: I'm sure there is one of it, but I am thinking of a a meme or a, a picture that I've seen and it's essentially like the roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's like, <laughs> it's and then why did I decide to do this? And then it goes back up to like, I know what I I've got this. I know what I'm doing. And then back down to maybe I should just sell it all. This is not worth it. And then back up. That's what I feel like it really is. Like, it's just, it's. there's moments of where you're really feeling on your game and like, you know, what you're doing. And then there's moments of, of thinking, what did I just get myself into? I'm not equipped for this. And then, you know, back up.
1: Yeah. I figured you might have something interesting to say about that um, because I do think that there's a there's a discrepancy sometimes between what people think it's like and what it is actually like.
3: I and I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of us business owners, just in general, put on this present to our employees or to our communities or our families as kind of stable, like we we know what we're doing um, and we. Kind of are these people on islands, business owners, alone with the struggles behind the scenes. And so people get this kind of facade of they know what they're doing. And if the business is actually successful, that just amplifies that clearly this person knows exactly what they're doing. It's very easy. There's never any issues. And they don't typically see behind the scenes, the struggle, the failures, the mistakes that all have led Mm -hmm. to success.
2: Sure. You know, I, I saw once a um, an image um, and that kind of addressed what you're, you're talking about. It was the image of an iceberg, right? And, you know, above the, the little tip was above the water and the rest of it below the water and labeled below the water was all the things you have to do to get to where you're talking about. Right. But what everyone sees is that little tip. Oh, it's not that hard to get to that tip, but they don't see all the extra stuff that was done. To get to that point, you know, and this topic that we're talking about right now kind of raises an interesting point. Um, and I actually heard you speak about this on one of your episodes. But the idea that um there are a number of, of indicators of when someone you know might know that group practice is not for them, right? And I know you've spoken to that before. Um, and I, and listen, I have spoken about that before. And I wondered whether you know, in working with practitioners and just in your own experience and things, was there one particular kind of indicator? to you that stood out more than anything else about whether someone's really looking at group practice ownership for them or not. Was there something that really is kind of like a hallmark of, is this the right thing for you or not?
3: I don't know if I might change my mind later in our Mm -hmm. conversation uh, and, and pick something else. But what comes out at me as you're talking is uh, people who make that decision purely from a financial perspective. Mm -hmm. um, There's just so much aside from that one the financial success typically as a group practice owner doesn't come for a long time. And, and mm-hmm. for a lot of people, they end up making less than they, they did solo when they're yeah. first building out their group practice. Um, but the idea of making a decision that's purely a financial decision, not that it's not, I mean, what's the purpose of owning a business if you don't get to have financial stability and financial success? But if that's the kind of main indicator of of the why behind starting a group practice, I find that resentment builds as you hire people, uh, bring people on, because that's, I feel like the hardest part of owning a business is employing people. Um, yeah. I feel like the group practice exchange, two different businesses, you know, from my group practice itself has 40, 50 people in it that uh, I employ. And then the group practice exchange, I have one employee and a couple contractors and the stress levels around managing both of those businesses, which you know, financially are in a very similar space. My group practice is much more stressful because of the staff management piece of it. There's a lot yeah. of people's thoughts and considerations to put into perspective when making decisions where with a small business with no employees, you really can just make decisions based off of your own of your own needs. And so, if you're coming from it from a financial perspective, I feel like only that that breeds a high likelihood of it. as you bring people on of um, feeling defeated, because it's not as easy as you thought Um, getting resentful as you bring on new staff members who Mm -hmm. might not like how you're doing things or might want things different than how you want them. And just the overall stresses of growing and building systems and policies. I feel like that's the number one indicator. If someone's wanting to do it for that reason, there's plenty of other ways to make passive income Mm -hmm. without uh, employing people without, um, you know, having to build a business that really has a lot of people under
2: its umbrella. Can I be honest with you? I, as an attorney coming from the business world, right? And working with attorneys. And I always laugh about the stereotypes about attorneys because I work with attorneys sometimes who are not always so pleasant to work with, right? But I joke, and I'm sort of being serious, but I do joke that I love working with my mental health um, practitioners because they're so nice, right? And I feel like mental health practitioners, you go through school, you become the person who wants to become a practitioner, someone who likes to work collaboratively, someone who likes to work, through compromise. And sometimes I find when I'm talking to practitioners, this exact issue of employee relations and what to do with employee and when to terminate or not terminate is some seems sometimes to be the hardest decision for practitioners because you want to be collaborative. You want to try to work with someone, but sometimes as a business owner, it's just not going to happen. You have to make a business decision. And that's in some ways so much different than how you think as a practitioner. And I just, as you're talking, that just occurred to me again. You know, uh, for the umpteenth time.
3: I feel like making decisions around letting people go and whatnot is is hard for any business owner. But I agree with you that we're in an interesting space as therapists ourselves because Mm -hmm. our whole embodiment as a therapist is to create safe spaces for people to have them feel comfortable and valued and needed and all these things. And so it can often feel like it's completely mind. To have to do performance improvement plans or potentially let people go from you know what we were brought up to do uh, in grad school, and so yeah, it's definitely probably one of the hardest things just within our specific industry as business owners being therapists is that piece of it because you uh, a lot of group owners will bend and they're bend over backwards, I uh, am looking for a GIF that has like maybe it's one of those. you know, those like wavy guys, those balloon guys that like, yes. I feel yes. like it's something like that, but one where it bends backwards and it's just like, like mm-hmm. floating backwards sort of, because that's how I feel like a lot of group practice owners are is to a fault. They bend right. themselves and maybe their businesses needs to accommodate as many of the employees or contractors that they have as possible. And although we see that in other businesses, I feel like less so from a non-helping profession.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. And simply because, again, to your point, it's one of those things where there's a business mindset, right? That I think practice owners have to either learn, either you naturally have, or it's something you learn if you're going to run a successful practice. And so I think that's really emphasized at that point. Another question I have is, you know, obviously group, you know, we're, we're pointing this out right now, group practice ownership is challenging, right? It can be rewarding, but there are challenges to it. Um, it can also be really emotional, um, you know, experience for practice owners. Again, you know, often because of the employees, because of the, the the need to want to be collaborative when sometimes you can't be. But you know, working with practitioners, are there examples, or can you give us examples where there um, have been experiences when that really have been emotional for group practice owners? I mean, I know obviously maybe that the employee uh, example is one of them. Are there other examples? that can, can kind of play on those emotions.
3: I think one of the common threads that I see among a lot of group practice owners that I feel like I've gotten to a really good place with myself over the course of the years is an almost like debilitating fear of making decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it, you know, obviously everything has like a trickle down of affecting employees, but even just, you know, whether to open a new location or not to move or not to offer ben- a new benefit or not, to change rates with clients or not, to get off insurance panels. It's one of the things that I see so often people asking, How do you just make a damn decision? You know, it mm-hmm. feels like yeah. every small decision feels so big. And I feel like that plays such a, a big role in group practice owners' kind of burnout levels. Luckily, it's not something I, I normally struggle with because I actually don't mind making mistakes. That's, I think, the Hallmark of it all is I actually enjoy when I make the wrong decision. Cause I'm like, I know I'm one step closer to the, to the right space. Um, and I, I get, I'm totally okay with owning faults and, and telling my staff, well, that didn't work. Let's try something different, you know? And that's part of that emotional struggle is feeling like you have to have the right answer and do make the right decision at all costs, you know? And then they end up overthinking it or not making a decision or talking about a decision that they want to make for a year because they're just so afraid of making the wrong one. That's emotionally it's exhausting, I think.
2: It's a powerful statement you just said, that as a CEO, a business owner, you're, you're sharing your vulnerability with your employees that, hey, I made a mistake, I'm human. You know, okay, now we're going to you know, try it again. Because I often find that that's one of the... When someone says to me, I want to start a practice, I'm like, okay, you're jumping off a cliff, right? But you're doing it because you believe in yourself, right? And hopefully right? you have like a... A <laughs> right, absolutely right. But at some point, it's always, and it always comes back. And I have that conversation. Like you believe in yourself. You know, if you believe you can do it, then do it. You know, and if you make a mistake, like you said, then, you know, just have the faith to know that that you're going to pick yourself up. And you know, exactly to your point, you'll figure out what's the next step.
3: And you make a, you bring up a good point. The the second thing is really having grit. You know, and and yeah. not sort of just giving up if one thing doesn't go right which I think is such just if you feel that way, business ownership of any kind is going to be so hard, you know? Correct. And whenever I make big decisions, I am always thinking, even if this is totally wrong and it costs me a lot of money or it costs me a lot of time or whatever, like I'll figure out what the next step is to fix that problem that I now have created, you know? And if you have that mentality, you will figure something out.
1: Yeah. And along those lines of kind of the the things that can make group practice ownership so emotional, you know, oftentimes we're talking about protecting your practice and that might mean ethics or legal issues, compliance. But the other part of that is being able to protect yourself emotionally, whether that's preventing burnout or just being able to manage those emotional parts of being a practice owner. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for group practice owners to kind of protect themselves emotionally from that roller coaster ride that you described earlier? Um,
3: Yeah, one is not taking things personally, which I know is easier said than done. (laughs) But if you can separate yourself from your business emotionally, which I think that was one of the hardest things for me to do, and it took probably six or seven years of owning my business to truly feel like my business and me are two different things. And someone can be unhappy, with decisions made in the business, let's say, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person just because they're unhappy with decisions in the the business. You know, as long as I, as a good leader am making decisions that are truly in the best interest of the organization as a whole and the people as a whole, you can't make every individual person happy because some people will want diametrically opposing things. Um, But if it's in the health and, and kind of wellness of the overall business and everyone inside it as a whole, then I know that the decisions I'm making, even if they don't make everyone happy, it's not about me. Like it doesn't, I'm not a bad person. Now, if I was someone who is selfish and making decisions to only profit as much as I possibly can, that'd be a you know a very different thing because, you know, then it might be at the expense of the health and wellness of my team. But yeah, I, I feel like that's the the biggest one is is that. I don't know what you guys think about that
2: as an attorney working with practitioners, sometimes when I have a practitioner who wants to leave a practice, right? How do I get out of this practice? How do I leave this practice if I have a con, an independent contract? Um, or, hey, I'm an employee, you know, and I want to leave the start group practice because here's what's going on. What I find, the number one thing I find, to your point, is that the practices where the person, the owner is selfish, the person, is, they're not focused, you know, they're focused only on their self-interest or, you know, it, those are often the ones that were either have you know, if issues with ethics, ethical issues, um employee issues, um and there's a lot of stuff going on and it usually comes down to the owner and their own issues, I guess you could say. And so I thought I think that's a really really good point.
3: Yeah. The other thing I feel like has really helped is for myself specifically is not leading in a silo um and having other people who can support in leadership. Um, I have a, a pretty big leadership team. I think there's eight of us now uh, in leadership in my group practice. And that just means that everything doesn't fall on me, which allows for me to have the ability to take time off without things falling apart. It also means that I'm sharing in like decision-making and power, which uh, improves morale at the office, right? Because then other people feel like they have a stake in it and the ability to make changes that impact the future of the business and not just me um and that's been really helpful just to overall reduction of burnout overall happiness on my end in terms of just being a business owner
2: mm-hmm. and there's vulnerability in that correct i mean cuz you have to be willing to let go of some yeah. control and let trust in other people to help you run your business and there's a vulnerability in that that i think you have to you know subscribe to you have to let yourself have to be successful in that way
3: yeah and it, and having a leadership team doesn't mean that it makes that it, from, you know, moment A of either bringing on someone to lead with you or a team of people to lead with you, that every issue goes away because there's issues in figuring out how to share in that decision-making in a way that just actually makes sense for everyone. That's something that I've um, kind of worked through as well with my own leadership team is, you know, shifting from everyone being in their own silos to Mm -hmm. all of us making decisions literally together, which I've noticed has created kind of uh, bottlenecks where we're like, More issues are coming up, but we're not fixing them because everyone has to be a part of it. And it's like, you know, does that make more sense? Or do we have like pods within leadership where each kind of pod has different areas of the business that they're working on and then presenting to the rest of leadership as uh, these are, you know, decisions that we think would be in the best interest of the business. Um, And I'm finding that there's a whole there's a whole system around even having a leadership team. Um, that's actually effective and workable. Because mm-hmm. like I said, that's another thing that comes up is if you have a team where everyone's making decisions, like no decisions will ever be made. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Correct. Yeah. Well, back to that social media post that I saw on your Instagram account that I want to hear about. Um, the post said, reminder, employees who leave may think you're not doing enough or that running a practice is easy. They likely won't come back later to tell you it's harder than you made it look, but they will think it. And so I was curious to see or to hear the story behind that, what prompted it? What are you seeing, hearing, experiencing that said, we need to put this out there? Yeah. So
3: nothing in that moment was happening, but it's something that, you know, I've had my group practice for 10 years and we've had people who started their own practice um and i've had people not a high percentage but people who've come back and been like wow it is actually hard but it's something that i hear just across the board in my facebook group and just with people that i work with that are group owners that they feel like the person who's leaving just doesn't know what they've they're getting themselves into and i, I come from this perspective of there are people that are, I was one of those people i worked in a group practice i was meant to have my own thing um and I remember also thinking when I worked at the group practice that I was at that like they were probably making eight billion dollars and that mm. I was being severely underpaid. And like mm-hmm. I remember thinking, like, we do so much here and uh, you know, what do we get for it? Type of thing. This must be easy. And I remember it took me starting my own practice to be like, holy shit, it took me six months just to figure out how to get my first insurance reimbursement. Now, this was pre EHR's. And all of that. Yeah. But I ended up having to hire a biller because I was like, I don't know what is wrong with me. I cannot seem to figure out how to get insurance to actually reimburse for these sessions. So I went six months without any pay whatsoever and seeing clients because I just couldn't figure it out. And I remember thinking, I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. And this is really hard. And we're not even talking about the marketing and getting pe- myself visible in my community and mm-hmm. all the, you know policies and procedures that I still need to put in place for myself as a solo provider. Like none of that was done. And I spent. 60 plus hours, building my website, answering phones, doing the billing, seeing clients, forecasting and thinking about how I want my business to look. And I I remember thinking, yeah, there's a lot that I didn't realize was happening behind the scenes at the group practice that I was working for. I know that's the case. I know it's the case for everyone else that leaves. And um, so I posted that because it was something that was being talked about a lot at the time. Um, but I also want to caveat in there cause I didn't, that doesn't mean that we need to be in a scarcity mindset as group practice owners of like not wanting people to leave because that's, you know, having lifers, isn't the sign of having a successful business necessarily. And that it's okay for people to leave and start their own thing. Um, and that you don't have to hope that they don't do well just to make yourself feel good, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I love that story. Um, and I hear those things as well from people, um, kind of this impression that it must be easy, um, and maybe not realizing how much work goes behind it. And I know when I hear it, I'm like, oh, you have no idea how much work is happening behind the scenes. And people just don't always see that. Um, but I love that story that you just shared from your own experience.
3: Yeah. And I've been lucky to have, um, two people that have left my practice in the 10 years to start their own thing. Who've come back um later um uh, because I either was helping them with starting their own thing cuz I'm from a kind of an abundance mindset in that like if you were really good as an employee like and and gave you to the to the job and did your, you know your work well and like engaged in the workplace culture then I totally don't and and you know didn't come in work 5 months build up your case so you can take it and start your own thing then I am from a place of let me help you I, you know, chatting with you, and usually going to coffee at Starbucks or something to say, like, "Here's some things to think about that you might not realize, and um, here's some first steps to take so that you are less overwhelmed." I, I come from that mindset of wanting to support them in giving any sort of feedback that I can as they bring on their own or start their own business. So yeah, I, I think it's like a not a two sided coin, but there's there's the abundance mindset of it's okay when people leave, and it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong, right. which I think a lot of people group owners and business owners alike will feel like that's the case. Like I must be doing something wrong because that person
1: wants to have their own business. But
3: also it is a lot harder than any person who is leaving thinks it's going to be.
1: In having said that kind of this abundance mindset that you try to have, is there a journey that you had to go on in order to get there? Because I think that what you're talking about can be a real challenge. So is there a journey that you had to go on in order to get to that place? Um, yeah.
3: I will. I'm just gonna, because I haven't even really thought about this journey. Um, but I feel like I definitely, I was lucky that our workplace culture was always really healthy. I think COVID has made it so that we had to shift how we keep that workplace culture being virtual because mm-hmm. we're still virtual. But in in all the years pre COVID, I'm gonna at least talk about we've done. We've been really good at being able to retain staff. And, and really not have staff leave. And I remember it was probably, I want to say like year five that are like first person to left. And so it was my first experience of, of um, you know, feeling bad, thinking I maybe could have done something different, thinking, you know, connecting my business and me as one thing. So if they're leaving the business, they're leaving me. And that means they must not like me and all of that stuff. And I kept, I, I feel like what I did unintentionally was remind myself Am I leading to my the best of my abilities? Am I doing consistent work to grow myself as a leader? Because if I'm doing that, then even if people leave, it's not about me. And that makes it easier to kind of swallow that people are leaving, you know? Um, and so... It's definitely not something that I naturally was, you know, abundance mindset, go ahead and leave. Everything is okay. It took a very long time. And probably also just the stability in my business makes it easier. If you're first starting and your business is not financially stable yet, and you have three people, and then one person leaves, obviously can feel much more detrimental uh, from a financial perspective, which will then make you feel like you have to hoard clinicians and not let them leave. And so maybe both of those things helped as, as a larger practice. When one person leaves, it doesn't impact you financially as much. So it allows you to then, um, from a humanistic perspective, step back and say, this makes sense. You know, usually you can tell it makes sense when a person leaves.
2: There's an additional point Uh, that came up recently with someone who I was talking to, um, who's a practice owner, and they were upset that this exact situation, someone was leaving. They're like, man, you know, I really like this person. I don't understand why they're leaving. And I said, you know, you have to give yourself credit because you talked about leadership, and I said one, you know one of the other things, and I think you really just emphasize this is that Im- uh, imitation is a serious form of flattery, right? If someone leaves your practice because they want to become like you, then it's because you have done a good job. It's because you have shown them what can be done, and they want to do that, and you've inspired them to do that, and that's what I told this person. I said, don't think it was a bad thing, right? This person could be a referral source for you at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Think of it as, hey, I did such a good job that I've inspired this person to want to do it for themselves.
3: Yeah, exactly. I love that mindset shift.
2: So we're kind of talking about this whole thing about COVID and we're talking about the stressors and, and things that business owners go through, um, both mentally, I think, and, and just from a, a business standpoint. You know, I think one of the challenges that business owners now have... So I guess my question is, what recommendations do you have for practitioners? Um, Who may be questioning? Practitioner owners often have a lot of stuff thrown at them. We've already covered that, but a lot of times it's external factors, things they have no control over. You know, the pandemic, for example, like I was saying, changed the entire course of the way um, practitioners do things, and that was completely—I don't think anyone could have foreseen that three years ago. You know, and there's been the rise of online um, uh, sites that do therapy. And so I guess the question I have for you is what recommendations do you have for practitioners who may be questioning um, their long-term survival of their practice? How do they weather some of these external factors they have no control over um, that may be thrown against them and, and them trying to succeed as practice owners?
3: I really love this question. Um, I feel like <laughs> the forefront of my brain as a group practice consultant right now mm-hmm. is the future of private practice, the future of uh, group practice and mental health. And, you know, as you mentioned, these online companies coming in and tech companies yes. kind of buying out practices and the CVSs and Walmarts kind of opening up mental health clinics inside their stores. And like, what does mm-hmm. it impact long-term on mental health as a whole, but also on group practices and solo practices even. One of the things that I'll say is, I really think that in some ways it's a positive thing for group practice owners because it stops us from being kind of complacent with where our businesses are at and mm-hmm. staying in the safe zone and not making changes um, from just that perspective. I think one of the biggest things that's going to be helpful to group practice owners is um, diversifying their services under the overall vision and mission of their business. So not like adding shit just to add it because they want to have as many different ways of making money as possible. Not for that reason, but looking at the overall vision of the business and where you see it going, I think finding ways that your business stands out aside from just offering, let's say one-on-one therapy examples would be, um, I think kind of having a multi-disciplinary business that all serves the mental health of clients, whether that's therapy, group coaching, or group counseling, med management, nutritionist, um, anything that kind of really encompasses encompasses the well-being of the person in, as a whole is going to be something that sets you apart from other groups. Because as you guys probably know, and I know as a consumer, I prefer to have all my like medical needs at one place. I don't want to go here for this and there for that. And that's going to help set you apart. I do think Being a larger practice is probably going to be easier for group practices as a whole as these larger companies kind of come in um, because it helps with your visibility. And then just even um, diversifying services, not in terms of being multidisciplinary, but also, you know, as an example, what we have been working on for a little over a year now, um, because offering new services always takes a really long time to Mm -hmm. get off the ground. It's almost like a mini business. We're uh, offering, so my group practice as an example is um, offering corporate wellness, like CWO, chief wellness officer sort of packages Mm -hmm. to large corporations to help them focus on the mental health of their employees. And it comes with a whole bunch of stuff. But it's a way that we can get almost proactive um, What instead of waiting for um, people to come into the office who already are struggling at that point to get into businesses and impact a lot of people at once sort of proactively so that they don't end up having to come in the office. But it's another way to support the mental health of people without doing counseling, without needing to use insurance in case insurance goes Funky in the future. Um, And it's just another way to support people as a whole. So I think that's going to be something that's helpful is finding ways to support the mental health of people, maybe even before they're coming into the office. It also diversifies your income and allows your staff to make money outside of one-on-one sessions, which tends to be what causes a lot of burnout, is like seeing, you know, 25, 30 clients a week. And so this offers alternative ways for them to do their work um, without burnout. But also kind of creates this space where your communities need you in other ways that maybe these you know tech companies and online companies aren't going to be able to compete
1: with.
2: Love that because basically you're adding a service for the market that some people don't even realize is needed, while being innovative, you know, and changing with the times as, as needed. I love that. That's yeah. such a great answer.
3: Dan, as an attorney, that uh, attorneys, lawyers were the reason that we actually started this corporate well-being program. Um, mm-hmm because our person who runs this program is friends with attorneys. And she was like, they were talking about how there's such an impact, obviously, as you would know, on the mental health of, of lawyers. And um, I know that a couple of years ago, they, the bar association implemented some kind I'm of forgetting what it's called. Cause I don't work with this specifically. I have someone in charge of it, but you can sign this like pledge as an organization. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like,
2: I do. I don't remember the name, but there's a lot of like, the Maryland bar association is doing something similar. Um, you. I know exactly the point you're you're getting at. Yeah,
3: and so this is what prompted her. She's like, I really think this is a way that we could, you know, support those organizations or those companies, law firms that are, you know, signing that pledge and prioritizing that for their attorneys. You know, we could be a part of that. So that's kind of where that whole program started. And it comes with forecasting, which would be Mm -hmm. my last point in all of this: is forecasting where trends, where you see things are going and not just staying in the present moment. I know right. as therapists, we're very present focused. Don't look at the past. Don't look into the future. But as a business, forecasting is so important because Absolutely. you're not reactive to changes. You know,
2: It's so interesting. Just an aside for those listening and, and I think practitioners to realize, but, but abuse, med, um, substance abuse, um depression. Um, alcoholism is actually just an enormous problem within the legal world to the point that many bars locations, state uh Maryland's as well, have programs like mm-hmm. l- like loads of programming, wide v- variety, and it, this is concept probably once a month get an email on the mental health, wellness and things aside of it from a, from a, from a lawyer's perspective, it's a huge issue because yeah. of the stressors, to your point. So that's that's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, Maureen, you've been talking about leadership and it's sort of been a thread throughout all of this. Um, And one of the things that I was thinking about as we were getting ready for today is, you know, there was someone who said to me, leadership is lonely. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about you in that, you know, when people think about group practice ownership or supports available to group practice owners, I think you're one of the people who come to people's mind. And so you've created this community for group practice owners to come together, get support, share ideas. But that's a community I imagine that is there to support other people. It's not necessarily your personal support. And so I've been wondering, you know, what is it that you're doing in order to get the support that you need as someone who's in this leadership role? And also I imagine that there's a lot of pressure in the role that you are in or how people see you in terms of, I'm supposed to have the right answer, or people are looking to what I do and say, and am I, what happens if, I don't know, someone doesn't like that, right? Because it's very public. Um, And just wondering how you manage that, knowing that, people are really looking to you and also just making sure that you have support when some of the supports that are in fact available to other group practice owners maybe aren't the same supports that are available to you. Yeah, that's actually a good question. Um I will say that
3: I am working with my leadership team uh to really get them more aware of the business side of things so that they can understand the why behind some of the decisions that the business makes so that even though it won't be a perfect, it won't be a perfect thing in terms of like the loneliness factor, because at the end of the day, even among my leadership team, I'm still the person that has to potentially make decisions that even the leadership team isn't all in agreement with. Mm-hmm. But I am slowly, um, as we've been building this leader, getting to a place where I'm being even more vulnerable than I would with my, just the larger practice as a whole and getting them into the why behind the business side of it. So I'm almost not only just giving up you know, control or decision-making power, but also like implanting some of my brain into theirs so that they can support me versus be the people that just implement what I say, you know, um, where they're actually checking in and saying like, how was making that decision? That must have been hard. You know, that's supportive in in its own right. It's only a percentage of support for me that I need. What really helps is I have, um, a group of, Business owner friends that I mastermind with, um, mm-hmm. who I really um feel like I get a ton of support from. They're, you know, not necessarily group practice owners, but in the mental health world that are doing big things. And I meet with them every month and are am able to talk through my problems. I get to hear the problems that they're working on. And um, you know, there's no skin in the game in terms of the feedback that we give each other because. We're all separate in our businesses, but it, it provides the type of support that you can't get internally in your, in your own group practice. And then the last thing is probably, I mean, it's not, not maybe as helpful for like the loneliness factor for some people. I'm an introvert and an only child. So being alone actually fills my cup. (laughs) So I go for like two walks a day to grab my Starbucks. I did one this morning Mm -hmm. and this afternoon when I go to, it's when I drop off the kids at school and pick them up from school. Um, because it's a you know, handful of blocks away at eight in the morning, I drop them off, walk and grab my Starbucks. I maybe listen to music, watch a couple TikToks, don't judge. And then, <laughs> and then on the way back at two ish, I go for my afternoon walk, grab a Starbucks, go through the forest preserve by our house, pick up the kids from school. And that is a way to kind of decompress and take some of the mental load off the emotional load that I might have from you know, the things that are going on in the business, because even a successful business, and kind of full circle to how you guys started this, you know, what people see versus what the reality is, is even a really successful looking business is every moment has things that are not going right. Um It doesn't mm-hmm. make it not successful. It's just, there's just no way to have everything always be working perfectly. And so there is, um, always something that's on my mind that I'm trying to fix or that I'm hoping you know gets better and walks tend to help me. So those are my things.
2: It's interesting because what I hear you describing is something that comes up a lot in conversation, especially when I'm talking to a client who wants to start a practice or has started practice is looking to go to a group practice model. And that is that you are wearing the hat of a business owner, right? But you are trained as clinician. And one of the things that comes up a lot, and I have to remind clients, is that you know, in fact, and depending on the size, it changes. But in fact, you're actually wearing not just a clinician hat; you're now wearing the business hat, the hat of a CEO. And sometimes, we've talked about this already on this just this episode. You have to make decisions mm-hmm. as a CEO that are almost, you know, antithetical to your training as a as a clinician. So I wondered whether. Um, and, and by the way, I would also say that as you kind of your practice grows, and I think it sounds like you're probably here. The actual hat shifts from being a clinician to actually just being a business CEO, and I'm wondering in your discussions and when you work with practice owners, I'm sure that some form of this discussion comes up. How does that discussion take place? What kind of how do you talk to someone about that to get them to understand? Hey, you're now not just a clinician; you're now actually in charge of a business and its interests, and you know, in making money and running things.
3: Yeah, I think. A big part of it is talking about mindset shifts, which our industry needs to make a lot of when it comes to like income and mm-hmm. um, when it comes to putting on the business hat, like you said, yeah. versus putting on your clinician hat. And it's something that even you know my leadership team struggles with sometimes yeah. of being like, you I know you're looking at it from the perspective of you as a clinician, but I need you right. to look at it from a perspective of you as a leader in the organization. Um, And I think it's something that just takes time to truly be comfortable with. And um, the best thing that you can do is to remind yourself that making decisions from a business hat perspective and not a therapist hat perspective doesn't mean that you're, you know, doing it from a non-humanistic perspective, uh, but that a healthy business is one that is sustainable and a sustainable business means that you can keep employing people. And so you can either do things from only the perspective of like individual clinician satisfaction, which likely will eventually lead the business to be not profitable and then shut down. And then those happy therapists, you know, at the expense of your business now isn't, isn't around anymore, or mm-hmm. you can choose to wear the hat of the business owner that is almost like slightly transparent and allows for a little bit of the therapist to. Part of you to come in there because uh, there's strength in being a business owner that has that therapy background. It's just which one is taking precedence can become problematic if you're only making business decisions from like the therapist side of you, you're likely gonna overcompensate staff. you're likely going to not put policies and procedures in place that are in the best interest of the business as a whole and so on and so forth. And so my best feedback with people, who are struggling with this and they're typically the new group practice owners is just be aware that that's going to be where you're at, that you're mm-hmm. likely going to want to wear your therapisty hat more than the business one, but that if you want your business to actually succeed, you're going to have to intentionally put that um, business owner hat yes. on, even when it doesn't feel comfortable and acknowledge it and say, oh, yep, it makes sense that I feel this way. That doesn't mean I have to continue to make decisions from that perspective. Eventually it gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier I think, which is I only really wear the business hat, but it has like therapist flair to it, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. Right. I love that.
3: Yeah. You don't, you don't want to be so businessy that you're like this cutthroat person that doesn't see, you know, the people in your business as like human individuals. And that's where I think we have that strength as therapist business owners is we have that part naturally. It's just like flavoring the, Business hat and sprinkling therapist into it.
1: I
2: love that. I can I have your permission to use that because that is so awesome. The business hat with a therapist flair to it. I love that. That's <laughs> awesome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Maureen, we're really appreciative of you coming here today and meeting with us and talking with us about your experience. I have a feeling that a lot of people already know where they can find you, but if you would also just let us know how people can connect with you, where they can find you, if they're interested in learning more about you and your work.
3: Yeah, they can go to the group practice and everything that I offer and do is in there. And the way I personally support people, you know, as the, that whole business has gotten larger, it's harder to, you know, really Focus individually on people is through my membership. I do Q and A's and have experts and all of that fun stuff um, going on in there. And you'll find that at thegrouppracticeexchange.com.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this has been exciting and, and, and a pleasure to have you. For everyone else, as everyone knows, you can always come to our website, our Facebook page, reach out to us. We all want your feedback, comments, critiques, questions. Uh, we want to hear from you guys. Um, But other than that, thank you again for listening today and we will talk to you everyone soon. Be
0: well. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit ProtectingYourPractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.